0: Revenue sorts out a lot of problems. You can have a mountain of problems in the background, but they, you can get them down with revenue. So that's totally. kind of what I want to say to everybody: Don't that's tomorrow good. doesn't really matter. Like you can plan out the rest of 2020, but it really doesn't mean anything if you don't have any money today. So I'm trying to get everyone to shorten their their time frame and what money you're going to make this week. What are you going to do this week to put revenue in your bank? And You're listening to The Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back
1: to another episode of The Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast. This is episode number one hundred and thirty three. Jace, what's going on? How are you?
2: Doing great. How are you doing, Clark?
1: Good. You guys are starting to open up in Texas.
2: Yeah, a little bit more open up. I went to actually try to book a hair appointment this morning. My hair is getting so long. And uh, in fact, <laughs> you know, it's funny that the, I, I, I'm doing a couple of interviews recently and, you know, we're, we're doing these over FaceTime and whatnot for a little operation that we're opening up. And it's so funny. People are like, man, has anybody ever told you you look like Captain America? Chris Evans. I swear, the only time it ever comes out is when my hair is like super long. People think that I look like Chris Evans. But anyway, I got on there to get a haircut this morning, and literally, they opened up at eight a.m. I go to Sport Clips, and and the app was showing me that the wait was already over two hours. That it wasn't even they weren't even taking online bookings, and it's been like that all day long. So we're opening up hair salons, open up nail salons, open up today. Uh, Next week there'll be a few more things. And uh, you know, hopefully, we can continue to curb the spread and and kind of get back to normal. But I'm I'm in the boat. that I definitely need a haircut.
1: You gotta have your wife give you a haircut, man. My wife gave me a haircut a week ago, first haircut she's ever given. And I mean, the question is, will it be the last? Will there be a second? <laughs> I, think, I I think it's a yes. It it was good.
2: it yeah, was good. good for was, you. She man. did a good I job. I don't know that my wife would uh, would She'd trust do fine. herself. It's not about me, it's about her trusting herself with, with scissors on the top and kinda trying to blend below and Oh, she'll be she'll be good. Just clip it on the side, but you gotta yeah, just fade it. She'll be good. I'm gonna
1: send her a text after this, tell her to do it, and save you a few <laughs> bucks too. Hey,
2: I'm not <laughs> I read an I'm, article she she doesn't want me to cut my hair. She wants me to keep growing it up. She likes it. She thinks I look better with it.
1: Because she thinks you're going bald, and so she's like, preserve it while it lasts?
2: No, it's not even that I'm going bald. It's only receding a little bit. She just thinks <laughs> I, I read look an better with longer this week. hair. Yeah.
1: yeah. I read about a couple who, they didn't fire, uh, but they retired. I don't know how much money they had. I think they were millionaires and, and living well off. And this is in the Wall Street Journal, I think, last week. And they started just kind of moving around. And, and their place was like, hey, we're going to try a year in this place, a year in that place. And... And they're like, let's just keep trying. You know, let's just keep living in different countries until we figure out where we want to live. Anyway, they settled in Bali. They were like, Bali's the place for us, some town somewhere in Bali that they really liked. But anyway, this article was all about that and like retiring and then what they did and then where they were going to go from there and then how Corona has impacted. So it, it's pretty interesting, though, know, the traveling thing. You guys think you'll travel a lot after when you retire?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we will. It's hard to say. There's a couple of things that we've discussed. My wife and I have kind of what we want to do because I don't want to I don't want to get to the point where I'm like 60, 65 and then just go haywire for 2 years, get totally burned out and then say we're done traveling right. in our 60s. So what we want to do and what we we've discussed and I know you and I've talked about this a little bit is is doing some sort of uh you know 6 to 8 week move to destination during the summer. Especially living in Texas, it's a nice time to kind of get away. It's a little bit hot here. Uh, you know, during the July, August months. So, so leaving, exploring, we'll probably stay domestic, not, not really move internationally, but once our kids get a little bit older and, and try to time that around sports and other things and kind of go for six to eight weeks and do that for, you know, many, many years while they're going through their adolescence years and teen years. And then by the time, you know, I figure when my youngest graduates high school, my wife and I will be probably in our mid to late fifties. And at that point, then we can reevaluate if that's something we want to continue or maybe we do want to go, you know, travel a little bit more when we get older. But I think by then, I mean, that'd be hopefully we'll have gone to a lot of places we wanted to go to. And I don't have this big urge to take mm-hmm, two years off mm-hmm. and just go or something. But who knows? I don't right. know. You know.
1: Yeah. Staying what about on y'all? A term
2: in one place.
1: Uh, I think similar to you guys. Staying in one place sounds more appealing than just going, going, going. Yeah you know, and really, really getting a feel for the area and exploring everything and kind of living there. Less of like a two or three week trip where you kind of feel like you have to run around and see everything real quick before you lose it, you know, or before you have to go home. So anyway, just an interesting story I read. So just to to sum up last week, we had Sam from Financial Samurai. He retired from a career in finance uh, in, in 2012. And I think he worked for about 13 years. So he had a net worth of $3 million. About 80k in passive income when retired. Now has about 250,000 or over 200 grand in passive income annually. He talks about living in a high cost of living area. He shares his investment allocation and experience in uh, in investing in crowd funded real estate, both some good and bad experiences. On today's show, we have Lee Carney. He's a single family home investor. Really interesting discussion with him. He started before 2008 in the early 2000s and ended up losing everything in 2008 and 2009. And now he's he's since Built it up and and is is in a good place now. But he talks about kind of some of the mistakes he made, including being levered. He talks about single family flips. What's most important? Where to spend the money? Buying wholesale, buying from auctions, and some of the horror stories that he's had in 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 his real estate investing. So really interesting story with Lee. We'd love to hear your financial story and have you on the show. So if you're a millionaire or close to becoming a millionaire, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail dot com. Also, if you're interested in some multifamily syndication investment opportunities, feel free to reach out. We feel like now is kind of a good time to buy, and and there's a couple opportunities forthcoming. So again, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out if you're interested, and we'll jump on a call, and most of those are for accredited investors. So thanks again for listening. We wish everybody the best. We wish you and your family safe, and, and everything's going well, though. So thanks for listening into the podcast. Hopefully, we can be a little bright spot in your week. And without any further delay, please help me welcome Lee to the show. All righty, Lee, welcome to the show, everybody. Today we have Lee Kearney. Lee, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I've been doing real estate about 16 years, um, bought and sold over 7,500 homes, done over half a billion in real estate. And I've done everything from wholesaling, all the way from assignments to buying and then wholesaling, rehabbing, Buying notes, buying at the foreclosure auctions, buying at online auctions, buying from the MLS, just on on foreclosing on people. I've really, I've done all aspects of real estate, so I've learned a lot over the last sixteen years. I learned a lot of what not to do as well as what to do, and experience at times like this. You know, at the time we we're recording this, there's there's a lot going on, so I I really try to lean on my experience and look at okay, when the market became choppy and uncertain last cycle. What did I do? And I'm trying to go back to things that I know work instead of trying to reinvent the wheel.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So just so everybody knows here, we're recording this uh, May 8th, so we'll probably uh, release it shortly, but right in the middle of all this COVID-19 stuff. So let me just jump back with you, Lee, for your story. So 7,500 homes, you know, buying, wholesaling, rehabbing, auctions, foreclosures, all this stuff. How did this start? Where, where? How old were you? When did this kind of first start? Where did you get the idea that this is what you wanted to do?
0: I fell into it. And what's funny, my father, I remember he told me in my teenage years, you can make all the plans in the world. You're, you're going to end up falling into something. And I remember him th- that's the way he described it to me. It's just, it's not usually what you planned. You just end up going a certain direction. So my direction started in 2003. I was actually working back in Ireland. Um, I'd gone to college in the States, moved back in 2002, back to Ireland. I thought I was going to live there. Worked for my father, industrial sales. I think I had a 30 grand plus commission job. Um, This is in euros. Bought a condo. Was real happy with myself. It was a penthouse. Thought I was amazing, you know, mid-20s. And sure enough, I got broken into. So I felt unsafe in my own home. Put it right in the market. And the strange part is I listed, I think, 30,000, 40,000 more. I got my asking price. And so within about three to four months of purchasing a property I didn't want, and putting it right back in the market, I made money. So that really got the screws turning in my head. I'm looking at a transaction I'm looking at a free place that I lived. I'm looking at more money than my paycheck, and I'm trying to figure out the world at this point. I'm like this money was just too easy. And so I was bit by the bug right there and then, and I decided I wanted to do real estate. And at the time, I was going back to college to finish my master's, so I thought it'd be a great way because I couldn't have a, a job in the states. But there was nothing preventing me from buying properties, so I decided I would buy a property, and that's how I'd make income while I was in college. So I found a guy at church who did real estate, and I've been big on this. I always ask people questions, and even at this stage, I never pretend like I'm the smartest guy in the room. And you know, sometimes I may be referred to at that, but I found that I can always pick up a nugget from another operator. So found a guy who did rehab; he rehabbed homes, and I said, "How can I help you?" And he said well, you can, you know, we can pick up supplies. I'll show you my rehabs. And he was real nice. He took me around his jobs and I got a real good understanding of what he bought, why he bought it, how much money he put into it, what he fixed up, what he didn't fix up. And for those people who are listening, rehabbing is about choices. I see so many people gutting every single house and putting everything new. Anyone can do that, by the way. If you hire a contractor, you don't need to be a master rehabber. You can just hire a GC saying, gut the house and put it back together. But the, the rehab professional understands it's about putting the least amount of money for the most amount of profit. That's the business we're in. It's not providing the nicest house on the block every single time because sometimes the market doesn't warrant that. You can have a Rolls Royce sitting in a neighborhood of Fords. It doesn't make sense because now there's a ceiling in that neighborhood and you've just over-improved the property. So I, I was really happy to get that lesson in rehabbing because it was drilled into my head, do this don't do this curb appeal, things that you wouldn't know unless someone taught you this skill set. So I took his model and I hired an agent and took me about three months. So I'd go to school during the day. I was driving properties in the afternoon, finally found a probate. He told me to buy a probate. I didn't even know what a probate was, by the way. So found out that someone had died and that's why this state was liquidating it. So we bought the property around 130, decided to move into it and save more money. Didn't have to pay for my college dorm. (laughs) Ends up You know, that was a disastrous idea because I was moving room to room as as I was rehabbing. But stumbled through the project, did exactly what I was told, put the signs out like I was told on a Saturday morning early. And sure enough, 50 cars pulled up. I remember the buyer, Jose Chalet, said, I want to buy the house. I put it under contract. Even up the day of closing, he found out someone had died because there was a disclosure in California. We have to disclose someone died. And he said, Lee, you know, I'm thinking about not buying the house. Is it ghost free? And I said, absolutely, it's ghost free. And sure enough, he signed the docs. And that that deal is posted outside my office because that was the first deal where I bought added value, sold and made a profit. And that sits right outside my office as a reminder of where I started in real estate. Did the same thing again, but moved back to Florida. Then I tried to remotely rehab. Don't do that. Hired a friend to do the job. Don't do that. And somehow stumbled through that project. And so now I'm back in Tampa in 2005. Asked a bunch of questions. Found out foreclosure auctions is where the real money was. So sure enough, showed up at the auction, realized it was a bunch of poker players mixed mixed with used car salespeople all in one room. I mean, it was a crazy dynamic. There was numbers being auctioned. People, hands were flying. People were getting dirty looks. uh, Stuff was getting sold. Money was changing hands with the clerk. And so this, this was wild. So I actually showed up literally for two weeks straight and tried to figure out what the heck is going on here. So a lady came up to me and goes, I've seen you come here. You want to buy my book? I'm like, sure. Well, what's your book? She goes, well, we turn the case numbers into addresses and we give you all the details and the foreclosure. So I was like, heck yeah. So got the book. Now I had a game plan. I'd go drive the properties in the morning and then bid in the afternoon. And within a few months, I became a formidable player there at the auction because I'd show up in old clothes, sit at the back. And just when my property came up, you know, I was all over it. And so people didn't know quite what to make of me. You've transferred, if you go forward to 2006, I was one of the biggest buyers at the auction. So it was amazing how the tables turned on that. And so I was rehabbing and buying and selling a couple rentals. I was doing great business. I woke up in 2007 because I wasn't looking at the market. I didn't understand that markets go up and markets go down, especially in places like Florida. I found myself rehabbing into a downward market. So fast forward to third quarter, got, got off my honeymoon. I told my wife at the time, I said, we're done. Like We're we're broke. So we ended up stumbling through 2008 with essentially no money, trying to mitigate debt and figure out what we're going to do and then start wholesaling. I learned a big lesson, a huge lesson back then in 2008. There's always money in real estate was lesson number one. But more importantly, you got to be on the right side of the trade. And I was on the wrong side of the trade. Wholesalers were making 10, 20 grand on my purchases that I was losing money on, they had transferred the entire risk of that transaction onto me. And I said, if things are going to be bad like this, I need to wholesale. I need to collect my money. I need to take risk off the table. I need to transfer that risk to the buyer and I can stack cash. And that's a lot of where I got myself out of the hole because in 2008, 2009, when my friends were filing bankruptcy, I was able to survive because I was able to generate a lot of income to offset the losses. And so I was super proud of that strategy. And even today, as we look around what's going on, we're focused on how can I make money right now? How can I bring in money today? How can I get revenue in today? How can I not get as much risk? How can I limit risk? You know, doing shorter projects is an easy way. You get into a development project today, you're projecting that the market's going to be stable in 2021, a year from now. And I don't believe that to be true. So everything we do is shorter revenue cycles, quicker rehabs, more wholesale, more conservative underwriting. And we're a big, big focus on week-to-week revenue. Okay.
1: Wow. Well, awesome. So was it? Is it fair to say that at all initially, was it was it the snowball method that started it? Meaning when you purchased that first home, was that just the money you had saved up and then you made Correct. money
0: and then you bought a couple yes. more and then you made more and then you went well, to the auctions and kept going? So it was a combination of lines of credit from Bank of America as soon as they got titled because this is back when the money was flowing in 2005. Me bootstra- bootstrapping credit cards. My initial purchases at the auction were purchased with cash advances on my credit card. I would literally buy something for hundred thousand, go to the bank. This was no joke. I'd throw down three, four, five credit cards, get a hundred thousand in cash, and go buy the property and fund it. Wow. I mean, now that might sound crazy, but let me give you some perspective on that. Hard money lenders at the time were charging 15 and two, 15 and four, 15 and five. That's 15% annualized interest plus two to five points. The credit card companies would give me 3% cash advance fee and 0% interest for six months. So I was literally financing houses on a credit card for 3% total. It was a great deal. It was like literally a great deal. And then Bank of America said, as soon as you get title we'll give you a minimum of 100,000 on every property. So I'd be into the property for 50 on a credit card. 10 days later, as soon as it got title, I'd cash out for 100. And so that, yeah, when you talk about the snowball effect, the money was flowing and that allowed me to scale quickly. But where I went wrong was not doing that because I bought great properties at great prices. It was doing ca- negative cash flowing rentals and rehabbing into a downward market. That's the two things that took me down. I could not support the cash flow on the negative cash flowing uh, rentals. And I could not support bringing cash to closing because I was selling stuff at a loss. I, if I'd flipped to wholesaling a year previous, I would have been a blip on the radar. And I really, really regret doing that. And I really regret not understanding the true cost of a rental and not building it, making sure that finance wasn't 80% of my payment. So in simple terms, I would have an eight or $900 payment on an $1,100 rental. That means repairs, maintenance, vacancy, and anything else that goes wrong with the rental all have to come out of $200. And for people who have who've managed properties for many years, you know, this is not possible. Just not possible.
1: Right. So where were you? I know you mentioned it a little bit, 2007 through nine. Where were you when that all started and, and how many properties did you own, let's say, and where did it
0: end up afterwards? Did you lose properties? I lost everything, zero. I even lost my primary residence. I lost everything. I had no home, no properties. So I purely switched to wholesaling and essentially owned nothing.
1: How, <coughs> ma- how many did you own? How many did you own? How many I owned went about down? a
0: dozen rentals and I had flipped several dozen properties in 2007, uh, maybe 40 or 50, and they were all sold at a loss. So any cash I had made, got lost. And then the rental, the equity I'd left in the rentals once I did a short sale was wiped out too. And 2009, as a result of wholesaling, I was able to buy my new primary residence, but it was like $80,000. It wasn't a lot of money because that's about all I could afford.
1: Wow. And so it's fair to say you've done this twice then built this up.
0: Uh, yes. I, I have seen the cycle where I built it up, lost it, built it back up. This time we're not going to lose it because we're prepared. We know what to do when things get tough.
1: Awesome. So so I want to take it, tons of directions we can go here. So that's why I'm kind of thinking where we go. So
0: wholesaling, how does somebody get into that? It's the easiest way to get into real estate. You basically look at what buyers are buying. So you want to look at the investors. If you're purely wholesaling and selling to a cash buyer, you want to understand what cash buyers are buying. So you can do that through the MLS. In simple terms, you want to understand what the cash buyers in the MLS are buying And you can see any cash purchases you can sort it by zip code so what we did was we looked at the the top 10 zip codes we'd figure out okay in city x from top to bottom where did the most amount of cash sales occur as a wholesaler you're just like a day trader in real estate or sorry just like a day trader on the stock market you don't actually care if the stock's going up down or it's flat all you need is volume that's what day traders depend on on the stock market it's exactly what a wholesaler depends on what you don't want as a wholesaler is no liquidity nothing selling because that means you have no buyers right so get into any big market in this country any market sort it by zip code with lowest or highest the lowest and cash buyers focus on the top zip codes with cash buyers and what, what that'll do is it'll tell you a few different things what's selling what price it's selling and what kind of assets people are buying and so then it's really simple you just gotta, gotta, you've got to buy below wholesale and sell to the wholesale buyers. So then the obvious question is, well, why, why aren't they doing what you're doing? They're lazy. That's the simple, straightforward answer. There's, there's probably 10 other answers I could give. But the simplest answer is the buyers that buy off the MLS or buyers that buy from wholesalers, they, just, they need the asset. and If they get it at their price, they don't mind you making money. They'd rather have the deals handed to them than do the marketing that we're doing. Right. So to, to acquire the deals, you've got to look for distressed sellers with equity and you've got to contact them. Now with today's technology, you can call them, you can text them where legal, you can you can leave them ringless voicemails if that's legal. Depends. You got to, that's a moving target. So you got to make sure that you're reaching out to people in a way that's legally appropriate. In other cases, you can send them a postcard or a letter. There's so many different ways, but you've just got to get in contact with these people. Our ideal seller is two things. One, they have to sell. So we only focus on people that have some sort of distress, a divorce, death, out of state, um, in foreclosure. You know, So we want distance as well as the distress. And I should have mentioned that. We want two main things. We want distance and distress. And then we already sort of list by people that can sell, which is equity. So assuming you have equity, we want you detached from the property, whether it's geographically or emotionally. And we want some sort of distress having to move the process along. Maybe it's a foreclosure auction. Maybe it's a tax deed. Maybe it's a code enforcement issue. But I need some sort of an issue in the background. And it's, so that way, it's like the carrot and the stick. We're saying, hey, we can buy your house. But we know in the background that there's a stick. There's there's a, a distress that's forcing this sale. And that's where we get the majority of our good deals. And the more distress and the more distant someone is from the property, that's typically where we get our highest equity deals.
1: But how do you find them? Is it, is, it, is it reaching out to them directly? Is it these auctions? What, what's the best way? That's is a great it?
0: question. It was the auction several years ago, but now as the institutional inventory has dried up, it's actually sellers direct. So we pull lists, we contact them with our openers in the Philippines. As soon as we get a hot lead, we transfer it to our closer in the States and we actually buy homes over the phone.
1: Wow. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So people can get into it. I mean, it's probably a little bit of time to learn and, and know where to go and what to do first, but it's possible, huh? Sure. Or
0: you get in your car. You can go drive around, find vacant homes, look up who owes them, look up how much they owe. That's all public record. And just say, hey, do you want to sell your home? I see your home sitting here. It's doing nothing. I'd like to buy your home. And as right. long as you know what an investor is going to pay for it. So if you see the investors are buying the same house for a hundred grand all day long, you get it at 70. There's 20 people who buy that home off you and you can make 10, 20, 30,000 on that all day long. So driving for dollars, as they say, right? <laughs> it still works. It still
1: works. <laughs> so what's been your favorite, your favorite method and what you've done here? Is there something that works
0: uh, options. best? Options. options were my favorite because you'd show up, you have the highest bidder, you win, you got predictability. Uh, when you're chasing sellers, it's like going fishing every day.
1: Nice. So how come I want to ask and I'm sure listeners are probably thinking, how come single family? How come you never switch to multi or do you also do multi as well?
0: Multi well, family is about to get a huge kick uh, the next couple of years. I've found the returns to be more stable, more predictable, um the appreciation's better, the management side of it. Uh, I like single family for a lot more reasons than multifamily. And people can disagree with me on that, but I've had tremendous success, and that's what I know. And I haven't seen two and three hundred percent appreciation on apartment buildings, but I have in single family consistently. If you buy them at the low point in the market and you ride it up, there's just it's just it's an asset class that I understand. It's an asset class with returns that I think dwarf multifamily. I look at people buying stuff right now, and you know seven eight cap C grade neighborhoods, and they're going to get crushed. They they don't realize it right now, but they're going to get crushed on these projects. So, what kind of what price range are you buying for? Right, rent? right now we're buying and selling, so we try to buy and sell in the affordable range. Um, but once we start buying rentals again, once the market cools off in the next couple of years, which I reasonably believe is going to happen, in fact, I could almost guarantee it, it'll be a sub one hundred thousand all in. That that would be my my comfort zone as far as that's kind
1: of the sweet spot.
0: Correct, C C plus in my experience is giving the highest yield. We also buy a financeable product, but it goes down a lot more than A and B. So you can buy it at a deeper discount. So you get more appreciation. You get more yield through your whole period. And at the end, you can sell it to a finance buyer. And the interesting thing happened this cycle and happened last cycle. As properties, A and B properties go up in value, it, it pulls up the value of C grade properties. So we don't buy D. We don't want war zone, but we want stuff on a nice street that's financeable in a C, C plus. And that stuff really climbs up at the end of a market cycle because the A and B properties have appreciated so much. So I have found it checks all the boxes for me, the stuff that I want to own. And it's been the most profitable area of real estate for us. We made the most amount of money by buying rentals at the bottom and selling them at the top and holding them because it's it's tax write offs along the way. It's equity when we sell out. We we realize that appreciation and tremendous cash flow along the way.
1: So you, you talked about in 2007 to 2009, you were over leveraged, right? Correct. What do, what are you guys at now? What percent? What do you try and hit?
0: I, I have less than 10 rentals. So it's it's probably 60, 70%. It's a, okay. So I any of, the, any of the stuff that you do for the flips, you're buying in cash? No, we buy we, with a combination of cash and hard money. Okay. But it's short term debt. It's not long term.
1: Sure, sure, sure. And
0: how levered is the hard money?
1: Because if something were to go down and you couldn't get out of it, and it, it comes due,
0: yeah, seventy seventy five percent, but that's off of today's value. That's off. That's not off some pie in the sky appraisal. That's off literally okay. what the house is worth today. Yeah.
1: So what markets do you look at, Lee? Is it anywhere that there's a is it, there's a good opportunity? Is it staying local to where you're at? Yeah, where local process
0: is is Florida. So we actually um buy consider Florida our home market. So we deal with our seller direct model is the entire state of Florida. And then we chase auctions as far as, you know, online auction platforms, we look for mispriced assets anywhere in the country, as long as it fits the pricing for our model, we'll buy it.
1: So how do you find it? If you're in Florida and, and there's a great opportunity in Ohio, let's just say I'm just picking a random state, Is, is do you have people out there that are looking? Are you searching the MLS? Or is it, yes,
0: I've got boots on the ground in certain markets, um, which is local operating partners. And then on top of that, we bid on online auctions that we can bid from Tampa, Florida.
1: Okay, awesome. And what what's the best online website you use for that?
0: Depends what you're looking for. You've got you know Hudson Marshall, auction.com, zone probably top three. Okay. And actually, auction.com, zone and Hudson Marshall, probably in that order, would be the biggest to the smallest.
1: And do you always look at the property or have somebody look at the property before you buy it? Or are you taking chances on properties you haven't seen in person?
0: No, we always will, will look at those and we'll hire an agent to get us a BPO and we, we give them the listing on the other side too. We tie them into the rehab too. So we make we use their resources for rehabbing. So we try to tie in local agents throughout the deal.
1: Okay. So one of the things you mentioned at the beginning, Lee, is knowing where to spend the money when you're rehabbing something, right? That you don't necessarily need to be yep. the nicest house in the neighborhood. Where's the value? Obviously, the kitchen, sure.
0: right? Where else? Actually, I'm going to wind it back a little bit. You got to do the have to items first, and then you do the want-to items. So the have to items are items that are needed to get financing. So if you're trying to maximize value, your intention is to sell to a finance buyer. So the roof has got to have five or more years left on it. Um, the AC can't be at the end of its useful life. So you got roof, AC, electrical has to be up to a certain standard, and they're getting really strict on that. Same thing with the plumbing. So before you do anything else, you want to look at your roof, your AC, your plumbing, or electrical, which are typically four-point items too, which is needed for a buyer to get insurance. Then you can look at your want-to items. So if you've got a 50 grand budget and your have-to items take up $25,000, you have actually got 25000 to do cosmetics. And the cosmetics could be anything from landscaping to paint to kitchen, bathrooms, stuff like that. So you've got to really – a true rehabber understands that like on a bigger rehab, about half your rehab budget is going to go on those half-two items. So your true budget for making the house look pretty, which is the stuff, the cosmetics outside the wall, is probably about half of that total budget.
1: Interesting. So, give us some numbers. So, you buy a house for what, 125 grand, right? What What is that? A three two?
0: Yeah, we'll say it's a three two. Yep, yeah,
1: sure. three bed, two bath. And then, how much do you put in it? And how long does it take? And then, when you sell it, how long do you hold? And how much do you sell it for?
0: That's a good question. Uh, we underwrite it with. A, we try to get a, a 12 to 15% net net return on that. So that's after all costs. So that's the way we work it out. We put in our selling price. I put in a rehab. I put in my profit margin, which is. Typically it's gonna be at least $25, thirty thousand on the higher end properties, is gonna be about fifty. And we try to make sure that we hit those numbers net net. So we back into it from the sales price and then we on our profit margin, then we back into then what we can pay and buy it for. It'll take us about sixty days to rehab because we don't do large rehabs anymore. And our goal is to stage it down. Well, it's to price it immediately, and then within a couple weeks of listing it is to move the price down until we actually get a contract on it. There's no point of buying, listing, or buy rehab and list. We're in the business of buy, rehab, list, and sell. And so you got to move this asset all the way through your system for it to make sense.
1: Yeah. So twelve to fifteen percent IRR. That's kind of what you're looking for on each deal.
0: Well, that would be per deal. So if you turn it a couple times a year, yes. But yes, that would be that would be correct.
1: Gotcha. And you guys are at about seventy five hundred homes you have now. We're no, done.
0: We've done. Correct. That that's about the number of deals we've done right now in inventory. I think we've got two or three hundred. Total. okay
1: okay and and have you noticed that the space has gotten more crowdedly over the last oh, yeah. several years as real estate just kind of become more appealing and people have done it more on their own and there's more re- you know you have like bigger pockets right where there's so much more people talking about it now i feel like than 10 years ago
0: yeah that's the end of the cycle that's normal the dumb money comes in as my mentor calls on the masses of asses they, that that's all normal stuff <laughs>
1: Okay, so tell us a little bit about what's been your your horror stories. I, I know you've probably had several, right? Maybe give us oh, one yeah. or two just for fun. What what kind sure. of happened?
0: I can tell you a crazy story, but it's kind of gruesome. But I'll, if you'd like, I'll tell you that story. That's all right. We'll edit it out if it's too gruesome. Okay, no problem. Well, first one was <laughs> I bought the wrong house early at the auctions. I realized early on that the term, the Latin term, which is in the Florida statute for a third-party bidder, says caveat and poor, buyer beware. So, even whatever the clerk's advertising may not be the, the property. So, I ended up buying the property next door. It was under six feet of water. So, that was my first big, big disaster. Another disaster from a live auction, I, I transitioned instead of being at the auction to having bidders at the auction and me being live in the field. So, if a discounted bid came in, I would be on the road and could go physically look at the property. So, I walked into the property. There was an old guy there, uh, gave me a tour of the house, was super creepy. Uh, Me and one other investor walked through the house, kind of asked us to come back into this room at the back. And I said, no, I was so scared. I ended up walking out of the house backwards, looking at the guy. Sure enough, uh, one of the bidders down at the auction was actually a former sheriff, good friends with the sheriff's department. He told us that the guy had killed his wife after we left because he was losing the home that day. Oh, geez. I mean, we, we talk of being on the front line of real estate. Foreclosure auctions are the front line. You buy them. The bank says, have a nice day. You've got to kick people out. I could tell you stories about putting people out in the street and they say, where are you going to go? They said, I don't know. And my guys are changing the locks and their entire belongings of their house. Cause they literally did nothing are in a pile in front of the house and they're sitting on a chair in front of their house. That's, that's mm. the side of real estate that people don't think about. You would be shocked how many people literally do nothing, get foreclosed on, literally have someone like me or companies like me knock on the door, still do nothing, get a sheriff to a victim, still do nothing. I I could tell you stories where the sheriff had to break into the home to physically remove people because they wouldn't even open the door. And they won't leave. They won't leave. And like we're talking about like their toothbrush is out, their food's in the fridge, like the linens are on their bed. I mean, their clothes are in the closet. I mean, they've done nothing like literally nothing. Mm. And I I would say we've had several hundred properties like that, where you put the entire belongings of the home out in the front yard. And that may sound harsh for people listening, but I think it's important for people to realize it's not like HGTV. If If you're dealing with foreclosure options, you have to remove the occupant to be able to process the asset. There is no other choice. You didn't take their home. They didn't pay the bank. The bank's the one's foreclosing on them. And you're not the bad guy. It's you or your competitor. But someone's going to buy the home and something's got to be done with the home in order to make money from it. And that's just that's just the side of real estate that a lot of people don't want to talk about.
1: Right. The ugly side. What's been your best deal, Lee? Let's flip sides. What's been your yeah, best, best deal? Yeah,
0: best deal I uh, was a land flip. We bought eight lots. Um, it was a church, and the church needed help. Uh, they didn't they didn't have the money to split the lots and do all the legal work. So we put it under contract with them and told them to take care of all the costs of the lot split. And bought it for twenty-five dollars a lot and ended up getting a buyer. The buyer said, you know what? I want to do all of the work because I want to build a certain kind of house. So the buyer ended up paying for all the money to split the lot and get it split the way he wanted it. And we double closed that in $200,000 profit. The church was happy and we're literally in tears because they had money, much needed money to improve their building. The builder wow. was happy because he bought lots at a fair price. And we we – We made 100% on that deal, you know, literally a $200,000 fee, but that was about a year process. And so the best deals for me is when I've solved huge problems for people, I get a huge payday. Not always, but the ones where I have got a huge payday is usually solving a huge problem.
1: So how did you find that specific deal? Did you know the guy from the church? Yeah. Networking.
0: Networking. And this is why you don't want to be a secret agent. You want to tell everybody what you do, have a good reputation in the marketplace, always do what you say you're going to do. And- then you'll have people. You'll will be word of mouth.
1: Right. Okay. So let's let's talk about that. How have you done that? Is it joining networking groups? Is it being active online? Is it reaching out to people? Is it having always mentors? closing on
0: deals? Dealing with agents. I deal with a lot of real estate agents. Always close on deals and make sure that we um, are consistent. Mm-hmm. I Forgot to tell you, I didn't mention it because I mentioned a couple of times. But yeah, I actually was one of the early people here in Tampa. I got COVID nineteen, almost died about six. Oh
1: ago. wow! Did you really?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. We, and you were what, on an incubator? And not...
0: No, they were about to put me on a ventilator. I was on a lot of oxygen. They said if I didn't turn around, they were going to put me on a ventilator and intubate me the next day. So, But that's basically a death sentence. So I yelled at them all day Saturday when they told me that to give me hydroxychloroquine. They finally did, and that's when I turned the corner. But I was literally dying on levacine. Because you were
1: like, let me just try something,
0: whatever. Well, yeah, yeah my friend was telling me, goes, you need this drug. And the doctor's like, well, I don't know. And I said, no, I need it. So they finally gave it to me. They're a lot more educated now um, here in May, but this was early March. So, yeah, it was uh, mid March. So that was a rough time.
1: Gosh, man. Well, yeah. you made it. That's crazy.
0: Do you know other people, a lot of other people that have had oh, yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of people reach out to me. Yeah. Actually, one of my business partners, his wife, uh, three out of her eight family members died. In oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. Wiped out almost half their family. Just crazy stuff, man. It's, um, this is where the numbers don't make sense because they just don't make sense at all. You you see both, both extremes on this. This doesn't make sense. There's a lot of unknowns. You know, people are telling you masks, no masks, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are dead. 20,000 people. I mean, it's, I know you don't know know what
1: to believe. You you don't know. I I
0: really don't. I don't. And everyone's got a new conspiracy theory every week. So I'm trying to ignore the noise, the the things I can control or things that are happening in the future. And things that are that are within my sphere. But things I can control and things that have happened previous, I don't worry about anymore. I just I try to focus on my little bubble and move it forward.
1: So what are you guys doing? Do you feel like it's a good opportunity right now, or do you still think things are overpriced and that it's everything's gonna get hit harder?
0: Yeah, we're just buying and selling. We're not holding anything. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a I think prices here in Tampa, Florida are gonna take a nosedive.
1: Right. Real estate wise, you're saying.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, half the businesses are closed. Half the restaurants, I could walk you around downtown Tampa. Half the restaurants will never reopen, ever. Like, they're done. Like, they're chained, boarded up. Like, they're done.
1: I mean, I'm in New York, and it's like, it's crazy. Streets are completely empty. Everything's closed. I mean, yeah. Now, New York is so
0: dense. It's so dense. And so many people live in Manhattan. Like, it'll come back. Because it has to. Because people need to eat. People need services. Like, it's just, there's that much populace. Here in Tampa, not that many people live downtown. It was a destination. It's, it's a ghost town.
1: Well, I still think a lot of the businesses will close. And then, I mean, people will start new ones in the same spaces, Correct. you know, Right. but I, I still think a lot of them are going to go out and then it's just going to, who's have the money to start one, who has yeah. the money to put in the new
0: deli, right? Yeah. Here in Tampa, I think it'll be a low point where a lot of stuff's going to close and not open. And the city's going to have to incentivize people to come back downtown.
1: Yeah. Do you invest in the markets at all? Not, not
0: at all. I think I'm maybe total, like literally total, total, maybe a couple hundred grand in the market. Gotcha. Yeah, I just, I'm scared to death of it.
1: Yeah. So, Lee, tell us a little bit about where to find you and kind of what you're offering and where people can learn more about what you guys are doing.
0: Sure. Yeah, we have a real estate uh, education platform called realadvisors.com. That's realadvisors.com. And then if you want to reach out to me personally, it's social media at, at realleecarney on IG.
1: Okay, awesome. So, Lee, really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Really good stuff. Everybody check out his his website and some of the information. I appreciate you coming on and being so candid with the responses. I think everybody's learned a lot. So, thanks again, Lee.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.